Welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. The opinions of financial experts are critical to many litigation matters. While financial experts certainly can opine on damages, they can also provide testimony on other subjects, such as causation, as well as helping a jury to understand complex matters, including corporate finance and transactions, cash flow, forensic accounting, and business valuations. The deposition of a financial expert is one of those inflection points that can make or break a case, providing an opportunity to lay the groundwork for discrediting the witness gaining a better understanding of the opinions, and perhaps even setting up a trap to spring a trial. My two guests on today's show, an experienced litigator and a premier financial expert, will discuss the best strategies for these depositions, as well as how to train lawyers to accomplish this important task. So my first guest is Jim Abrams. He's a partner in the Columbus, Ohio office of Taft Law and represents clients in all aspects of civil litigation with a concentration in commercial matters. Before joining the legal field, Jim held leadership roles at both publicly traded and privately held businesses, including serving as CFO at Gap Inc. and Williams-Sonoma Inc. His deep knowledge of business allows him to bring a real-world perspective to client matters. And Jim's success in the corporate world also includes helping to build emerging growth companies and startup ventures in the retail, direct marketing, and consumer products industries. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My second guest is David Benkert, who is a Senior Managing Director in Anchor Consulting's Disputes and Economics Practice. For over three decades, he's been providing client solutions to their financial, regulatory, and compliance oversight issues. These activities have included financial accounting investigations, expert witness testimony, damage calculations, self-disclosures, and financial performance reviews. David has provided deposition, trial testimony, and presentations to federal and state regulators. He's a certified public accountant and certified in financial forensics. David, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So, Jim, let's start with you and just kind of get the context for today's discussion. In your opinion, what makes depositions of financial experts different from those depositions of other experts? Well, financial experts have this magical theory and ideas that ordinary people don't understand. And I think the black box concept of financial wizardry is what makes the financial experts more difficult than other witnesses. And when you say financial wizardry, that would be things relating to to business and and uh, accounting and those types of subject areas that litigators don't really have training in when they go to law school. That's correct. The typical attorney coming out of law school is not necessarily equipped 
to understand financial statements and may never have had any exposure in financial forecasting, planning, or doing any of the tasks with respect to analyzing financial risks that these experts bring to the table. So when you come into a deposition, what are your goals when you're taking that financial experts deposition? Well, obviously it depends on the case, but I always start with the rules of evidence. And then based on the rules of evidence, then I attempt to direct my questions to whether or not that expert has, like any other expert, as a matter of fact, has fulfilled their obligation to do what they needed to do to qualify their opinion. With financial folks, if it's a damage analysis or if it's a lost profit analysis or something even more difficult, then what I try to do is understand the basis for what the expert is testifying to and challenge him on whether or not his methodology makes sense under the circumstance. And so when you're thinking about a goal for a deposition, are you trying to basically argue with the expert and show why he's wrong? Or is it more just kind of like understanding what his opinion is so you can use that later on at trial? So I want to get enough on the record, if I can, to demonstrate to the other side why the expert's opinion is incorrect or improper. But I don't want to I don't want to show my entire hand either. So what I try to do is again it all depends on the case and the, and where we are in the process but if I'm lucky I'm going to get the expert to agree with me that they haven't followed the proper methodology or they've missed something. And I will use that either in summary judgment or at trial. Sure. And, and let's bring David back into the conversation. David, you've given you know many uh, depositions and you are a financial expert. So when you're sitting down to provide a deposition testimony, what are your goals in that situation? Well, in many cases, it depends on the questions that counsel asks, because I think it's important for an expert to recognize that counsel is controlling the deposition. And if you try and and control it, it will not turn out well. But when we're calculating, like in a lost profits analysis, the reason that we're hired is because it's not clear cut and there's going to have to be assumptions. And generally, courts say that damages must be proven to a reasonable certainty. And as part of that process, you're going to have certain procedures that you used in order to collect data. You're going to have assumptions that you used and how to analyze data, time periods, variety of different things. And certainly you're going to perform the calculations. And then you'll have your opinions based on that analysis. All of those factors contribute to making sure that when the court views your damage calculation, they believe that your estimate is accurate in that you perform the proper assumptions. So when I'm answering questions, I really, first of all, I wanna make sure I'm understanding the question that I'm being asked. And then I wanna really make sure that I'm answering that question and really focusing on defending and demonstrating that I have used the correct assumptions. I have used the proper procedures in calculating those lost profits. And typically when you 
go into your deposition, you already have your opinions kind of laid out. You've provided them to the other side. And I've heard kind of there's a there's a dance between an expert sticking to his opinions or trying to expand upon those opinions during the deposition. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts as to when experts generally uh, want to kind of expand those opinions that they've already submitted to the other side. It depends on the, in the situation, but generally by the time my reports are getting into on the other side, unless there's new evidence or unless there's something we've discovered, um, the opinions that we're giving are pretty much already you know, baked into the process. They're baked in the expert witness report. So we're not necessarily varying that far from those opinions. So let's talk about what strategies that we want to use as attorneys uh, to take these depositions and and to defend them, by the way. David, I understand you recently participated in a deposition training session with the ABA litigation section. I wondered, can you tell us a little bit more about that deposition training session? Absolutely. That program was a joint effort between Ankara and ABA on the litigation section. And that program provided opportunities for younger attorneys who hadn't had a lot of experience taking depositions of financial experts and financial experts that didn't have a lot of experience in deposition. They were probably second chair. They were probably in the background doing a tremendous amount of great work, but they just haven't had an opportunity to be in the deposition box and have that. And like most things, you want the deposition training to simulate real life. You know, they've talked about in sports, you can practice all you want, but the important thing is you need to play the games. You need to be out there. You need to play the matches, whatever it is. You need to focus on that because that's where the questions don't come as you've anticipated or the questions aren't laid out the way you might like them to be laid out. And it requires you to think on your feet still make sure that you're staying true to what you've done and is that part of that process. So this training, I believe, was very beneficial for both attorneys and experts to really talk about and participate in deposition training. Additionally, there were faculty members of very experienced attorneys and experts who provided feedback to both the attorneys and to the experts about how they might handle a situation, how they might respond to a question, how they might set up a series of questions in order to set up the expert. All of these things become strategy that become part of that experience that you get so that you do are able to take effective depositions or give effective depositions as you go through your career. Well, it sounds like it was great hands-on training uh, for the attorneys and the experts. Jim, I understand you were also involved in that training. What were some of the positive things that litigators took away from that training? So, yes, I was uh, part of the faculty who observed and then provided comments to the young lawyers. I think the most important thing that the participants came away from that training session were about preparation and having a great handle on the facts of the case and the opinions that had been previously offered in the expert's report. We did it in two sessions, and the folks that did their first section who may not have been as prepared did a hugely better job on the second go-round because they understood that they had to prepare. I think the other thing that 
was a great takeaway for these lawyers was how to control the deposition and not get distracted by objections or maybe a misunderstanding of a point of view. Let's take both of those points and dive a little bit deeper, Jim. So you talked about preparation, and I think you opened our discussion by referring to uh, what financial experts do as uh, financial wizardry. So how does an attorney get prepared for a deposition of a financial expert when you know these are going to be pretty complex opinions? What are some of the things that you can do to help you to understand where the expert is going, understand those opinions, and develop questions to get at that? Uh, first and foremost, and I'm sure Dave Benkert will appreciate this, is you hire your own expert. Because at the end of the day, that expert that you hire is going to help you formulate the questions that you may want to ask that you aren't as familiar with. So I would say critical to this process is make sure you have a competent expert on your team. Then secondly, make sure you understand the expert's report, because whatever's in that report is what you're going to be able to use to either challenge or overcome the assumptions that were made that gave rise, or you'll discover problems with the calculations that were done. You may discover, frankly, that indeed the expert didn't employ generally accepted accounting principles, or the the expert may not have understood that a certain element had to be included. So read the report and know it as best as you can before the depositions. I think those two things, and then know the facts of your case. And David, I I assume you'd agree, getting your own expert involved as soon as possible, giving them a copy of the opposing parties experts report is is critical. And then letting you kind of digest that report. And you, I assume you can provide questions and analysis and that sort of thing to get your side's attorney ready for the deposition. Absolutely. I think that is a, a key process. And I think it's more than just providing questions. It's sitting down with them and walking through the analysis. And many times you'll have one expert will have done their analysis. The opposing expert will have done theirs. And there will there's always differences and approaches and, you know, how they've done it. And, you know, but sitting down understanding, you know, what did you both do the same? What did they do differently? You know, what really is driving any difference in damages? And so that the attorney really understands the report and just isn't asking questions related to the report, but they understand where it's driving. And I think many of the, you know, great attorneys that we work with, they want to do that. They want to understand what that is and where the you know potential weak spots are. Many times we're asked, so where's the weakest assumption? Or what is an issue that you know you find the find a problem with? And then work with them to be able to draw that out and get, you know, be very specific with that expert and get them kind of tied down to that opinion and to that approach. That makes sense. And and Jim, going back to your second point, you talked about having the attorney control the deposition. What do you mean by that? Well, it is easy, particularly with experts, but in any deposition, but particularly with, with experts, a witness sometimes can control the deposition. They will answer questions that you didn't ask because they have in their mind, and again, this is particular with experts, they have in their mind what their opinion is. And so 
with respect to experts, particularly, you want to be able to be very clear with your questions and precise so that you don't give the expert any wiggle room. And I think that kind of control is critical. I think the other kind of control is you're always going to have opposing counsel on the other side trying to interrupt and disrupt. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but it happens. Lawyers, it's an adversarial process. And lawyers on the other side want their expert to look good on the record. And so there's going to be objections that are going to disrupt your train of thought. And what you have to do is just understand what your goals are, what you want to accomplish, and stay in control in that regard. Oftentimes, uh, I've seen opposing counsel kind of in my own cases when responding to my deposition objections, either A, they just completely ignoring the objections or getting upset. You know, why are you objecting so much? And coming across as being adversarial to you and kind of being taken off their point as opposed to, you know, directing their attention to the witness that they're examining. What is kind of your advice, Jim, for dealing with objections from the other side? So in my state, Ohio, speaking objections are not allowed. And I think, in fact, that's a good practice. And so I make sure that that opposing counsel understands that they can object because they're entitled to object, particularly as to form and any other reasonable objection. If they make the objection, I have no problem with it. My only problem is when an attorney objects to every question you ask, and each one of those objections is a speaking objection, and all they're doing is speaking for the witness. And that happens even with expert witnesses. So I say that my experience is it happens. What you want to do is try diligently not to let it get under your skin. And as appropriate, take a break and just stop the proceeding and go outside, take a breath and come back and start over. Well, that's really great advice. And David, coming back to you, uh, I think Jim had mentioned kind of not letting the expert control the depositions if they, you know, because oftentimes, you know, you have academics come in and they're used to, I don't know, teaching a class and they're controlling that environment. They come into a deposition environment that's quite different. And so my question for you is kind of a question about tone. Do you have any thoughts on sort of how you should, as an expert, provide that testimony, whether it's kind of more of an academic tone or more layman's tone because you're, you know, and I guess it depends on whether or not you're being videotaped and that sort of thing. And, but I wonder sort of what are your thoughts and and what have you seen good and bad in terms of an expert's tone during a deposition? Going back to what we talked about before and having the attorney control the deposition, I think Jim made a good point that sometimes when the attorney asks not very specific questions and give an opening. That's the great opportunity for the expert to, you know, to talk about their opinions, explain them in detail, and really to provide the information that they wanted to portray about why their assumptions and their approach and their damages are appropriate in the circumstances. I think 
when you have an attorney that is asking very specific questions and very tied down, I think you have to be, as an expert, you have to be careful about being argumentative and going back and forth with that attorney as they're asking questions and make it adversarial because particularly in depositions um, that are videoed. And I think almost every deposition I've been in recently has been videoed and all of a sudden those come back to you at trial and you really see that there's a different way that you react when your counsel asks you questions or when your client's counsel asks you questions and when opposing counsel asks you questions. And I think that's not my approach. My approach is trying to provide the same information using the same tone, try and answer them as specifically and the best I can and try not to get adversarial you know, based on the questions or based on how their tone is, but just take the question, absorb it, understand it, and then respond. That makes sense. So going back to kind of the positive things that litigators and I guess experts as well took away from that training, can you talk, I guess, from the expert point of view, David, what are some of the positive things that the experts took away from doing that training with the attorneys? Some of the positives is certainly understanding just how to answer questions. You know, we've all prepared, we've answered questions, but when an attorney is asking you questions on the other side, many times they're asking you a question in a way that you would never think of asking it in that way. You know, it just happens. So being able to think on your feet and respond to the question appropriately, but at the same time, it's even though it's maybe not the way but also looking for your opportunities where you can respond to a question, provide them more expert information that really bolsters your opinion on the procedures or why you had relied on certain assumptions. And I think that becomes something that you learn over time, but you need to know when your opportunities come up in a deposition. And sometimes depending on counsel, they don't come up very often because right. counsel's done a really good job in preparing. But I, but I also think just being in the room, and as I said earlier, even though it's mock, uh, even though it's the training, you still have the same feeling, you still have the same apprehension about what they're going to ask, how they're going to approach it. All of those prepare you for the next deposition that you're involved in. Sure, that makes sense. I think both of you talked about kind of uh, learnings that these attorneys and the experts have had uh, during the training and that uh, some mistakes that they made kind of early on in the process were corrected or fixed later on. Jim, were there any kind of common mistakes that you saw during the training, especially early on, that they were able to correct? The one that strikes me the most significant was that I think they didn't understand that it was a trial deposition. And as a result, they treated it more as a discovery deposition. And I think once they had gone through it and understood what the purpose of the deposition was intended, that they got better at making sure that the testimony they needed to elicit was the testimony that's going to support their position of the case. I think that was probably the most significant. I think then there were a wide range of skill sets from somebody who'd never taken any kind of a deposition to somebody who had taken several depositions, but never an expert. And I think that 
going through it the first time was just a, as David said, that experiential process is just a great way to teach younger lawyers how to be better lawyers and do a better job with their depositions. Right. Because those, um, those deposition transcripts or, or the videos even might appear later on in a summary judgment motion or motion to bar or even at trial if the expert's unavailable. So it's really important to make that distinction, I think, between kind of your run-of-the-mill discovery deposition and what you're, what you're trying to do with this financial expert. Right, Jim? Correct. That's correct. Got it. And I think the participants in the process got that after they had tried it once and and we were able to give them a, a critique of the performance and point out some of the things to which they should pay attention. Okay. Well, fair enough. And and I think now we're going to turn to kind of our war story part of the, the podcast. So I know each of you probably have had probably a, a, an expert who has done really, really poorly or did a really great job during your careers. So Jim, do you want to start kind of uh, sharing with the audience a story of a really good expert or a really bad expert during a deposition? I'd like to share a really bad expert. It was a contract case, fairly straightforward. And the witness refused to identify the assumptions upon which his opinion was based. And rather, he continued to talk about calculations he made, not understanding that all he was doing was digging a deeper hole for himself because an expert isn't necessary to do calculations. An expert is needed to provide opinions that a layperson cannot. And this expert just didn't seem to understand it and was unwilling to respond to questions about the actual assumptions that he had to have made that were the basis for the formulation of his opinion or his what he called his calculations. It was frustrating to say the least, but at the end of the day, it turned out that that expert didn't help his client at all. And the lesson there is the expert is permitted to rely on certain assumptions. Now, when they do that, of course, then a, a good expert will challenge those assumptions. Some experts don't. That's the other side of the coin. I have had a situation where an expert relied on one basic assumption for their entire opinion. And it was easy for me to give them a hypothetical that said, if the law says that assumption is incorrect, then your entire report is without merit, right? Mm. And what was the expert left to do? So those were two experiences that I've had. I probably could think of more, but for time, I think that that demonstrates some bad experts. Well, that's interesting. And, and I wonder if in that case that you're talking about, maybe an evaluation on the other side needed to be made as to whether they even needed an expert. If truly all they wanted is, is for the expert to do some adding or multiplying or whatever, do you really need an expert for that? Or alternatively, maybe they were just trying to hide a bad assumption. Who knows? But I'm sure 
it was the latter because if it was the former, all they had to do is provide the calculation and everyone would be okay with it. That makes sense. David, let, let's turn to you for an example that you can share with the audience of either a good attorney taking a deposition or just a really bad set of questions that you've seen from an attorney taking your deposition. I'll start with the first one and talk about a really good attorney. Um, I've been in several depositions where they were very meticulous in walking through my opinions, walking through the assumptions, walking through the calculations. And obviously they had been well-prepared by their, you know, their experts and basically pinning me down on exactly what my assumptions were and what my calculations were, what the process was. And as Jim pointed out, really controlling the deposition, not giving me much opportunity. I was just, you know, just answering questions and and they were very, and not being able to expound much on those questions because it was very specific. It was about, you know, this particular topic or this particular assumption and, you know, what information, you know, went into developing that assumption. And so I think those depositions, you don't have a lot of opportunity to really reinforce or express, you know, your opinions. You're really just answering questions and you're, you know, regarding your opinions and they're getting, they're getting a very good understanding of exactly what you've done, exactly, you know, why you chose that versus something else. And so when it comes to trial, they, you know, have you pretty pinned down? I think, you know, kind of a bad set of questions are really those more on the flip side where the questions tend to be open and the expert has the opportunity to basically talk through their opinions and the other side doesn't really come away with any really specifics as to how they got to their procedures, were the assumptions valid, They've just really allowed the expert to recite their report and talk about all the assumptions that they've used and why those were so appropriate as part of that process. Great. So I want to thank both of you. We're kind of running out of time uh, for this episode, but thank you very much for being on the show. I think you've, number one, I think that we've seen just a tremendous benefits that these folks, the experts and the litigators received at this training. Um, and thank you for being on the show to kind of share with us what those folks learned as well as what you learned uh, during this process. So a- as we kind of end the program, I wonder sort of what's the best way for listeners to find more about you and your work? I know, Jim, uh, you're with Taft. What's the best way to reach you? Our website at taftlaw.com or they can reach me at my Email address at jabrams at taflaw.com. Great. And David, same with you. Similar for me, um, anchor.com is our organization's website. And my email is david.benkert at ancora.com. Great. And so now kind of we'll just have some final thoughts here. I mean, for me, I think what I took away from it is, is that there's a really great ability for for litigators to learn kind of on their feet during this um, during trainings I'm sure that law firms and there's different training organizations that uh, litigators can learn from certainly the ABA litigation section is one prominent example that of course I would be uh, familiar with and, and share with everyone but Jim I wonder if you ha- sort of had any final overall thoughts for our, our listeners today well I, I would just encourage people to participate if they're litigators, they should participate in the litigation section. 
if they're commercial litigators, they're welcome to uh, my committee, which is the Commercial and Business Litigation Committee. But even if you are just a section member, attending annual section, annual conferences, and various other programs that are put on by the ABA really are helpful to learn skills and to make acquaintances with folks who can help you be a better lawyer. Excellent. And then David, any final thoughts from you? I just think programs like this are very valuable for both younger experts and younger attorneys, because in this day and age, it's important to get that experience. And a lot of times um, in practice, younger experts and attorneys don't get these opportunities as often as they may like. So being participating in these programs and being part of them and working with um, you know, actual financial experts as they're going through this can be very valuable in developing their career, much like the experts in use to having their deposition taken and having their opinions challenged. Terrific. Well, thank you both for being on the show today, Jim Abrams and David Benkert. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being on. We really appreciate you uh, sharing your tips today. Thanks, Dave, for having us. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is Assistant General Counsel in the Litigation Center of Excellence at Honeywell International Incorporated. Daryl, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. I'm glad to be back. I understand you have some tips about building relationships with in-house attorneys. That's correct, Dave. I wanted to kind of focus in on this, I guess, now, you know, being in-house. And I think there are certain things that young lawyers should know in trying to build relationship with in-house counselors. They try to build their books of business to potentially, you know, be promoted in the partnership track if that is their desire. So the main key points, and then I can just kind of go back and break them down that I wanted to focus on was one, building the relationship organically. And then two, focusing on learning how that particular person plays into their organizations. And then and the last is really discussing, you know, the subject matter that you desire to be an expert on in order to gain that business from that respective in-house attorney. So now turning back to the first point was to build the relationship organically. I can say, you know, there's nothing more awkward than someone that may be trying to gain business. But then there's like that awkward conversation between the two individuals that you, you know, that are either the person that you're trying to gain business from or you being that individual. So one thing that I would give as a key piece of advice is to really you know, listen to the attorneys or the in-house person that you're speaking with and understand and know who they are as a person and maybe understand what their likes may be in their hobbies and see if there may be ways that you can connect organically through, you know, similar or like hobbies. And it may even be, you know, small things such as, you know, maybe attending the same alma mater or just liking to golf or, or explore, you know, the world in, in certain different ways. And you can kind of build those relationships by ensuring that the in-house attorney who you're trying to gain business from knows who you are as a person and knows who you are outside of the legal profession and uh, just kind of you as an individual and the things that you may be able to offer them will organically arise in those communications that you may have with the attorney. So you 
you want to be able to find those common interests. And then one thing you also want to be able to do is read the room and kind of understand, you know, how the dynamic is of that conversation that you're having with that in-house attorney so that there is a like for one another and that the individual feels like you can be a trusted advisor to them when they turn to you to provide work to you in the future in building that relationship. So that's the first point that I wanted to make about building those relationships organically. And then at that point, in building that relationship, you want to understand or focus on learning how that person plays into their respective organization. In-house, there may be different levels that the attorneys may have in that in-house organization. And, you know, they may be ranged from entry level to being the head lawyer in charge or the general counsel of that organization. You want to understand how that particular person plays into the organization's structure and understand if they have the ability to even provide work or if you should be cultivating that relationship so that they can introduce you to the key players of their organization to be able to provide you the opportunity to pitch for work. Uh, You want to make sure that you're not going all in and the person that you're discussing the in-house relationship may not be in that position to be able to provide you with work, but they may be able to understand and know who you are to be able to reach out to their peers and be able to provide you an opportunity to pitch for business. So you may want to know what their team looks like, what that team makeup is in order to know, should you be discussing, hey, send me work or should you be discussing how can I best present myself to, you know, someone on your team to be able to land the work from your organization. And so those are things that you want to really look at and you really want to focus in on, which is my next key is your subject matter. You know, oftentimes you may have people that are sending pitches and they may discuss many, many, many areas of law that their organization or their firm may be able to provide. But you want to know who is a subject matter in a certain area so that you can be able to pitch that particular individual if the matter that arises is involved in a certain subject matter, whether that be, you know, a labor and employment issue. You want to make sure that you have someone who's well versed in labor and employment matters and the laws and regulations that may be surrounding labor and employment. And same for litigation. You may want to have someone who understands litigation through and through and has good trial techniques and be able to provide that information and, you know, in growing terms now and even cybersecurity. Understand and know who your key players are within your law firm that may be subject matters in certain areas and allow them to potentially be the person that pitches to get the business. So for you personally, that may look like If you're a general litigator, you may want to focus on maybe hot key issues that may be arising in the litigation space and understand and kind of learn and teach yourself about that area, you know, attend CLEs or attend conferences that may be discussing that area. And if that particular subject matter offers, you know, certifications, you may want to look into taking those exams to get that certification so that you can build yourself and set yourself apart as a subject matter expert in a particular area. And so when you make that pitch, you want to make sure that you pitch only to what you can do. And then if you have individuals in your firm that focus on particular areas, you can also mention that to that in-house lawyer to potentially gain that work. So you don't want to sell yourself on an area of law that you know nothing about, because I promise and guarantee you that your lack of knowledge in that particular area to someone who may focus solely on that within their in-house organization will present itself. And that will definitely, you know, kind of mess up your opportunities 
and landing the business in that instant and also in the future if you try to pitch for something that may be within your subject matter expertise. So you want to make sure that you are very cognizant about what you have to offer to an organization and also who you are as an individual. And then, you know, in focusing on areas where you can meet these in-house lawyers, maybe at conferences or, you know, just out about within your city, you want to make sure that once you make that interaction with the lawyers that you can potentially either get their business cards or exchange information. And while the work may not present itself immediately, you want to follow up with that attorney and make sure that you're being consistent and that follow up can range from anywhere from, you know, grabbing a bite to eat, or if you see a hot topic or you see an article that's presented by some organization, you know, sending over that article and say, hey, I think this may be of interest to you uh, because this may be changing laws or anything like that. So you want to find unique ways to follow up with that in-house person so that you can potentially gain that relationship with that individual and potentially gain business in the future. And that may set yourself up uh, on the correct track for partnership if that is what you desire. And so, Dave, these have been my quick tips on building relationship with in-house lawyers and the potential to gain business from that in-house lawyer as our young lawyers traverse their careers. Well, great. And thanks, Daryl, so much for sharing your in-house perspective for our listeners today. I appreciate you for having me. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at our next litigation section event. Please make plans to join us at the ABA annual meeting in Chicago in August. To see the full schedule of litigation section events, go to ambar.org slash litigation annual. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. Finally, I'd like to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff for the litigation section, for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. And thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. Finally, last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>